you, Mark. Thank you very much. <clears throat> now, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> the tomb of Tutankhamun, discovered by Howard Carter and <clears throat> Lord Carnarvon in 1922, is one of the best known archaeological finds of all time and of all cultures, but also one of the most challenging. When Carter first looked into the tomb, he described what he saw as wonderful things. Now, this was no exaggeration. The tomb has given us a fabulous collection of objects which uh, truly deserve the much misused term treasure. I'll show you just a few of them. That's the gold mask, which everybody knows. The image of uh, a cow, perhaps the, the sky goddess. Uh, one of the necklaces or collars. That's the third, the innermost gold coffin, the coffin which was entirely made of gold. A rather mysterious uh, item, presumably referring to resurrection. That's uh, one of the goddesses protecting the Canopic shrine. The so-called mannequin, an item which again has not been properly explained. Perhaps it was used to display Tutankhamun's uh, clothes or jewelry, like, like a modern mannequin. One of the pieces of furniture. And uh, uh, the, uh, one of the three or four shrines over the sarcophagus. All the items, with a few exceptions, are in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, but Carter's documentation of the discovery is kept in the archive of the Griffith Institute here in Oxford. There's the Griffith Institute on the left. Uh, it's at the back of the Sackle Library. And if by any chance you don't know where to find it, there's the Ashmolean Museum. And we are just around the corner from there. It was given by Phyllis Walker, Howard Carter's niece, after Carter's death. The Griffith Institute's archive is the largest specialized Egyptological archive in the world, and Carter's papers represent only one group of material out of about 120. Everything which I'm going to show you is in this archive. The black and white photographs taken by Harry Burton are contemporary with the excavation and so date from between about 1922 and 1932. The color photographs are by John Ross and were taken between about 1980 <coughs> and 2000. Now imagine the following scene. We are in the Valley of the Kings in the southern part of Egypt on the west bank of the Nile opposite Luxor. It is Sunday, November the 26th, 1922. It's Carter's pocket diary. And a small group of people consisting of Howard Carter, Lord Carnarvon, his daughter Lady Evelyn, Arthur Callender, and two Egyptian races, four men, have gathered in front of the second sealed door of the tomb of Tutankhamun. That's the plan of the tomb, and that arrow shows where that group is standing. Carter is peering into the small opening which they have just made in the top left corner of the doorway. It is Lord Carnarvon who asks the question, can you see anything? To which, as Carter himself recorded in his and Macy's book, The Tomb of Tutankhamen, he replies in the now immortal words, yes, wonderful things. However, 
In a journal written in his own hand, Carter recalls replying to Carnarvon's Can you see anything? by Yes, it is wonderful. And to complicate matters further, according to Lord Carnarvon, <laughs> responding to his Well, what is it? Carter's reply was even more prosaic, as if describing goods displayed on a stall in the Luxor Souk. There are some marvelous objects here. Three accounts, three different versions of what was said. And who can tell which of them is right? Now this is Carter's own plan of the tomb. There was nothing above the ground which would have betrayed the presence of a raw tomb. This is uh, uh, looking at the entrance to the tomb from outside. That wall above is, of course, modern. So originally, the entrance was simply sanded up, covered up. That's where we are. And there was absolutely nothing to indicate that there was a, an, a, a new row tomb hidden there. The, the tomb starts with a staircase of 16 rock-cut steps leading into a narrow descending corridor. These are the 16 steps. Here we are looking uh, at the, the steps from inside the tomb. You can see it's much lighter up there. So that's where the entrance is. That's where those uh, steps are. And now this leads into a corridor. And this is, we are standing in the corridor looking into the first room of the tomb that uh, Metal gate is obviously modern, but the picture was taken before uh, the objects which were stored in the antechamber uh, were removed. So this was actually the view which Carter saw when he looked into that second sealed doorway. That's that doorway. That's where uh, the doorway is. And now this corridor leads into the first and largest room in the tomb, the so-called antechamber, where most of the funerary equipment was stored. That's the antechamber. Those are two views of the antechamber. And I'll show you, uh, because the antechamber was, was the most spectacular uh, part of the tomb as far as uh, objects which were found in it were concerned, I'll show you uh, what it uh, looked uh, like in some detail. So this is the entrance here. We are standing there and looking. We are looking, uh, let's see, the, the staircase leads from the east, so we are looking west. Uh, so that's the west uh, wall of the antechamber, and this is the view in front of us, uh, dominated by these uh, uh, three pouches. One, two, third one's over there. Now if we look back, uh, again, that's the entrance, and we are standing there, looking back. As you can see, there's a small step, and then you can see the corridor was descending. Uh, was, uh, was sort of coming down into the antechamber. This is the view of the antechamber when we are looking to the left. We are standing somewhere there. These are the dismantled chariots, which uh, you can see there, and once again, those couches uh, against the, the west wall. And finally, the, the north wall. If you look to your right, then there is a, a wall separating the antechamber from, from the burial chamber. The uh, 
door leading into the burial chamber was, of course, originally sealed. So that picture uh, was taken uh, after Carter started removing the blocking of the entrance. And what you can see inside the burial chamber is the first, the outermost of the, of the shrines over the, the sarcophagus and uh, the coffins. Now, when uh, Carter actually entered the, the burial chamber, it became apparent that the room was almost completely taken up by a complex of shrines, sarcophagus, and coffins. That's the burial chamber, and this is a view of uh, the, the shrine which took up almost all room in the burial chamber. You can see between the shrine and the, the northern wall, there was only so very little space. <coughs> and the same sort of applied to the other side uh, around, the, uh, around the, the outermost shrine. A huge gilded wooden shrine contained another three shrines. And I'll show you how it worked. So this is the outermost shrine. That's the one which you could see through that doorway. As Carter looking inside the shrine. And now, it was a set of shrines. There were four of them all together, like Russian dolls, one sort of shrine inside the other one. And then there was a sarcophagus made of quartzite. And inside the sarcophagus, there was a set of three coffins. The Outermost and the uh, the middle coffin were made of wood, which was uh, which was gilded, covered uh, with gold plate, and but the third one, and that's the one which you see there, was made entirely of gold. And now inside that innermost, that third coffin, was the mummified body of uh, uh, King Tutankhamun with the gold mask, which you have seen at the beginning of my talk over the shoulders and the head. And uh, it's a slightly unusual view, which perhaps is not quite familiar, because as you can see, the beard is still attached to, to the mask. Nowadays, uh, you see the, uh, uh, the mask usually without, without the beard. <coughs> now, I'll show you that whole sequence once again. So we have got, three, uh, we have got four shrines. Quartzite sarcophagus, three coffins, and then the uh, then Toots mummy. To the east of the burial chamber, there is a room which uh, uh, was uh, quite small. Uh, Carter referred to it as the treasury. So that's the room, and this is the this uh, is a view of uh, the room. We are standing in the doorway here. There was a doorway between the burial chamber and the treasury, unlike most of the other doorways in the tomb, this one was not sealed, it was, it was not blocked up. So the room was regarded as sort of being a part, in fact, of the burial chamber. And we are standing roughly in the doorway and look, we are looking this way on, on this photograph. I'll show you a better, larger picture of it. And the, the, the room contained, among other things, a chest with the king's internal organs removed during mummification. Uh, that's the canopic shrine there. 
The most conspicuous item was a portable shrine with the image of Anubis, the god of the necropolis and mummification. Uh, the, the shrine stood more or less inside the, the doorway uh, leading into, into this room, and it's, it's, for me at least, it's one of the most wonderful images uh, from the tomb. So I'll show you a few more of them. That's, uh, uh, the, uh, that's Anubis on that shrine. And the shrine was presumably used during the burial, so during the funeral, during the funeral ceremony. So, so obviously when the, the body was deposited in, um, in, in uh, uh, the coffins, the, the, uh, the shrine was sort of left standing uh, in the tomb there. That's how it was found. It was wrapped up, as Egyptian statues usually were wrapped up in, uh, in, in, in linen. That's the detail of the head of the, of the animal. A small room to the west of the antechamber, the so-called annex. That's, uh, we are now back in the burial chamber, in, in, the, in the antechamber, and there was a small room, uh, again, the, the terms which are used for describing these rooms are <coughs> obviously fairly arbitrary and not exactly, and not absolutely accurate, but we are used to them, so, so we know where we are. And this was intended for storage of food and some furniture, but was found in total disarray following at least one visit, probably two, by tomb robbers. So this was what it looked like inside the annex. That's another picture. <clears throat> Howard Carter, the excavator, and Lord Carnarvon there is Lord Carnarvon, the sponsor who financed the excavation, were worlds apart in their background, education, social standing, and wealth. Yet they both possessed that indescribable something which made them ideal partners in archaeology. Each of them probably saw qualities in the other which he admired, but which he felt he himself lacked. Lord Carnarvon did not take direct part in the tomb's documentation. Carter. Howard Carter was a brilliant, intuitive archaeologist. He was also quick-tempered, occasionally a little tactless, with a penchant for showmanship, and bitterly resentful of those who regarded themselves as his social superiors because of their birth or education. He was not easy to get on by any means. He was a man of his time, with many of the prejudices of the period, yet he was also remarkably modern in his relationship with Egyptian workmen and his stubborn determination to stick to his principles, whatever the pressure. At best, he was tolerated, but often shunned by the British academic community. Envy played a considerable part in it. Carter, in his turn, did not make any overt attempt to ingratiate himself. Lord Carnarvon's death on April the 5th, 1923, only a little more than four months after the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb, must have been an enormous blow for Carter because it deprived him of someone who would have been able to smooth his relations with the social as well as academic establishments. Most of the recording of the two men objects found there, probably about 90% of it, was done by Carter himself. That's uh, one of the object cards recording so-called throne, really a sort of very 
ornamental decorative chair. That's uh, one of the cards recording that figure of uh, Anubis, which uh, you have just seen. And that's his copy of the inscriptions on the Canopic Shrine. These days, there can be dozens of archaeologists excavating even relatively straightforward sites. Carter's team was very small. He assembled a team of carefully selected specialists. Its core members stayed with him throughout the whole season. These were Carter, Mace, Callender, Lucas, and Burton. Others came for a limited period of time to work on a particular aspect of the discovery. Carter's closest Egyptologist colleague was Arthur Mace, a British archaeologist. He was appointed assistant curator in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in 1909 and became associate curator in 1922. Mace worked with various American missions in Egypt and the Metropolitan Museum lent him to Carter to work in Tutankhamun's tomb. The considerable contribution made by American Egyptologists during the work in Tutankhamun's tomb is not always fully acknowledged. Egyptologically, Mace was Carter's equal and only he and Carter recorded objects found in the tomb. That's one of the cards made by <coughs> Mace. Another one here. Ill health forced him to retire from active archaeology early, and he died in 1928. Carter's friend from well before the discovery of the tomb was Arthur Callender. Callender was a retired employee of Egyptian Railways and lived, it up, lived at Armand, south of Luxor. He was a practical man rather than a scholar, somebody who good at directing workmen, fixing electric lights, helping with the restoration of objects, and many other things an excavation needs. The fourth permanent member of Carter's team was Al Alfred Lucas. Lucas was a chemist employed by the Egyptian government and the Antiquities Service and directed all restoration and conservation in the tomb. <coughs> so on many of the cards prepared either by Carter or by uh, Mace, there are notes on the conservation, what was done to those objects, in what state they were found, and all those are by Lucas. So it was, in terms of conservation, it was a remarkably modern, modern excavation. Both Carter and Lord Carnarvon were competent photographers, but the task required professional skills. Harry Burton, the fifth core member of Carter's team, stayed with Carter throughout the whole campaign, although he also continued to work for the epigraphic mission of the Metropolitan Museum. He was another member of the team who was paid by the Metropolitan Museum. The Griffith Institute has a complete set of Burton's original large glass negatives. His photographs complete the description of objects and provide information on the context in which they were found. They combine information and artistry and are among the most attractive archaeological images ever taken. I'll show you a few. These are food containers uh, stacked under one of those couches, elements of uh, uh, one of the chariots. This is the canopic chest, which contained Tooth's uh, mummified internal organs. Detail of uh, one of the coffins. Uh, <coughs> that's uh, the uh, chair or throne, which uh, you have seen uh, a card for made by, by uh, Carter. 
Burton's photographs contrib contributed enormously to the public perception of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Other scholars were asked to deal with specialized tasks, among them A.H. Gardiner, later Sir Alan Gardiner, that's him, and there is a copy, his transcript of one of the <coughs> hieratic inscriptions of one, on, on one of the wine jars, who helped with inscriptions, and James Henry Prestead, that's Prestead, professor of Egyptology and Oriental History at the University of Chicago, who took part in the recording of sealed impressions. Percy Edward Newbery, an Egyptologist and botanist, helped with the botanical specimens, and his wife, Essie Winifred, undertook the conservation of the pall draped over the second shrine during the 1923-24 season. Dr. Douglas Derry and Dr. Saleh Behamdi, the anatomists, were the first to examine Tutankhamun's mummy. The number of local workmen varied according to the needs of the work. They were led by foremen, Reis Ahmed and Hussein Abu Omar. The work was organized into seasons, each between four to six months, usually starting in October or November and closing in April or May. Tomb KV-15 of Settles II, deeper into the East Valley of the Kings, was turned into a workroom and a temporary storeroom. Carter used the term laboratory for it. Objects were periodically removed from the tomb to the laboratory and crowds of freelance photographers and tourists gathered around the entrance to the tomb to witness this procedure. Uh, getting some of those large objects out of the tomb was actually quite a, quite a procedure in itself. That's one of, the, one of the couches being taken out. And there it is being taken, packed, taken out of the tomb one of the beds being removed from the tomb to uh, the tomb of Settles to KB-15, tomb of Settles II, where then it was conserved and quite often recorded. And that's one of the chairs, this uh, Carter accompanying the uh, uh, procession. The work in the tomb and its meticulous recording took Carter and his team some 10 years, between 1922 and 1932. <coughs> The records of the 5,398 objects found in the tomb consist essentially of two elements. Object cards, there are about 3,150 of them, and black and white photographs, about 1,850, taken by Harry Burton. There are also maps and plans and diaries. Carter's successful completion of the recording of the tomb was a huge achievement. The discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb was the result of knowledge, intuition, many years of research, and excavator's luck. By the following decade of hard work and perseverance in the recording of the discovery, in the face of all obstacles and opposition, was just as impressive. There are countless interpretations and reinterpretations of the death of Tutankhamun and the circumstances of his tomb's discovery. More are being added all the time. They could be the subject of one of those historical mystery, come, adventure, and romance books, which are now so popular, minus the Knights Templar. The discovery has left its mark in many spheres of our modern life and influenced high as well as low cultures, from arts and literature to exclusive fashion and popular advertising. Visual as well as textual references to Tutankhamun and his tomb are easily understood. Tutankhamun exhibitions have traveled all over the world drawn large numbers of visitors, and earned large amounts of money. Indeed, one may wonder whether there is still anything which may be usefully added. 
Yet all this conceals one of the best kept secrets in Egyptology, and a huge paradox. Most of the contents of the tomb have not yet been fully scholarly studied. Altogether, 5,398 items were recorded by Carter and his team, but many of them, in my estimate, some 60 or 70 percent, remain largely unpublished. Even some of the most spectacular items have not yet been properly studied and published. I'll show you a few of them. The mask has not been yet properly published, properly studied. Jewelry, Shabaptis, those little servant figures. The coffins, scribal equipment, the head of tooth emerging from a lotus, as a, again, an image of resurrection. Shields, alabaster vases, and other alabaster items. I'll show you, show you the same, a little larger. That's the back of the mask, that's that pectoral, the shapti, the third gold coffin, the scribal equipment, uh, dude's head on a lotus flower, one of the shields, wonderful alabaster vases, so-called wishing cup. An object can be described as fully studied only when all its aspects have been examined in the light of the best Egyptological knowledge currently available, when the results of such an examination have been analyzed in detail, and when the conclusions have been considered in the context of the existing scholarship. It is true that some excellent work on the tomb has already been done. Howard Carter's three-volume work, The Tomb of Tutankhamen, the first of which was produced jointly with Arthur Mace, is a classic. We have two good biographies of Howard Carter by Mr. James and Mr. Winston, and a very good general book by Dr. Reeves about the tomb and its discovery. A number of small monographs of excellent quality on selected categories of Tutankhamun's objects have been published by the Griffith Institute. These are some of the items already studied in detail. The shrines, the sarcophagus, bows, chariots, model boats, quite a remarkable folding bed Quite astonishing that the idea already existed. Tutankhamun, when he went on his travels uh, to various parts of Egypt, uh, had his own bed, folding bed, with him. Astonishing. The, the design of it is just absolutely astonishing. The, the trumpets, uh, various uh, games, and the, the golden shrine. So these objects have been studied. Nevertheless, if the current rate of progress in the study and publication of the tomb is maintained, even the youngest among those present here today will not live long enough to see their completion. <laughs> A lot has been written about the curse which haunts those who have dared to disturb the Pharaoh's peace. It seems that such a curse does exist and that it is at work, but it is a curse which has prevented Egyptologists from coming to terms with Tutankhamun's tomb. The reasons for this state of affairs are quite complex. A huge blow for Carter was the loss not only of Lord Carnarvon, but also of his closest collaborator, Arthur Mace, very early into the work in the tomb. There's uh, Howard Carter with uh, Lord Carnarvon, and there with Arthur Mace. They are standing in the doorway, removing the blocking of the do doorway between the antechamber and, and the burial chamber. Carter was physically as well as mentally exhausted when the work in the tomb was completed in 1932. The second factor, the second factor which has pre prevented a speedier study of the finds is the nature of the material. Many objects are made of valuable metal. For example, the third coffin, it's the one you can see here, 
made entirely of gold, weighs 100 kilograms or 243 pounds. And this has always made study more difficult because of security implications. The third factor which has played a part is the exceptional character of the find. Possibly the most important contribution which the tomb of Tutankhamun can make to our knowledge of ancient Egypt lies in the area of ancient technology. What we have here is not representations of objects on tomb or temple walls, but the, the items themselves. Some of the expertise and knowledge which are needed in order to study them properly are not usually found among standard Egyptologists. Tut and the objects found in his tomb do not belong just to specialists, but have become the intellectual property of all. To have to wait for another hundred or more years before the objects are properly published and so made available is clearly not acceptable. The Griffith Institute has therefore decided to make Carter's complete documentation of the tomb available on its website on the internet. The task has now been nearly completed. Anybody, be it an expert, an academic, a student, or just an interested person can consult it for free. The project is called Tutankhamun Anatomy of an Excavation, and the fact that the Griffith Institute's website records more than a million hits every month is largely due to Tutankhamun. I shall show you how the website works. Right, that's the, uh, the website of uh, the Griffith Institute. Now, there are all kinds of things there, but the, the one we are interested in is uh, called Tutankhamun Anatomy of an Excavation. And now there, all the, practically all the Tutankhamun records are now available. Uh, the most important uh, is the database of all items found in the tomb. Now, Carter assigned numbers from 1 to 620 to the objects found in the tomb, and some of the numbers were further subdivided, A, B, C, A, A, B, B, A, 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 B, 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 and so on. And uh, now, uh, the, all the items are presented in this form, and uh, they are in chunks of, uh, of 50. And if you are interested in a particular object, you simply find the number there, click on it. Now that's, for instance, the ceremonial chair. Now first of all, you've got, that's Carter's number, uh, number in the, in, 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 uh, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, uh, brief description. And then there are icons which contain transcripts and uh, scans of all the cards. So if we say look at this one, click on this one. Now first you have got, uh, you have got uh, a transcript, but you also have a scan of the card. The transcript is needed because you don't necessarily, not everybody would find it easy to read uh, Carter's or Macy's or Lucas's handwriting, but even more importantly perhaps, uh, Eventually, we haven't got it yet, but eventually there will be a search so that any expression which occurs in the description on these cards will be a searchable item. So uh, all, the, all the cards are there, and also all the photographs taken by, by Harry Burton are there. Again, as icons, click on it, get uh, an image of the... And uh, you can easily move from one photograph to another. Mm. 
So that's sort of pretty straightforward, really. You can't go wrong there. Now, the important thing is that you are also able to search for objects because you don't necessarily know that that particular chair is number 91. So uh, there is a search where you simply, if you are interested in chairs, you type in chair. You get a list of all the chairs which were found in the tomb. And among them, as you can see, is the one which we have just looked at. You can uh, look for perhaps a little unexpected things. So if you, for instance, type in the expression glove, considering we are in Egypt, surprisingly, you discover that there are quite a few gloves which were found in uh, the tomb. And once again, you can go to the individual entry, photographs, very smart, very smart gloves they were. Glove, which was obviously used, worn by Tutankhamun uh, when he was very, very small. So that's the main database, and uh, this is how it works. Uh, now, some people prefer visual uh, images to descriptions of, I find, find them much more comfortable. So there's a gallery of all the photographs. So all those, um, there are 93 pages of them, so. So uh, we have got, um, how many? We have got tw uh, 20 on a page, 20 multi multiplied by 90. So about those 1,850 photographs are all there. Very easily, you can, uh, you can go through them very, very easily. And for each of the photographs, there is a number. So if you then want to find out about the object represented on the photograph, there is another search which makes it possible for you to to, to establish which object it is. We also have got uh, uh, photographs, and, uh, especially photographs, uh, which uh, do not appear in the, in the database. For instance, uh, pictures of the exterior of the tomb. So these are images which would not be in the database because they don't show objects which, which Carter would have numbered. We also uh, have... Uh, photographs which show the painted decoration in the burial chamber. The burial chamber was the only room in the tomb which was decorated. And uh, if you wanted to see what the decoration is like, there it is. Once again, you can get then a larger image of it, if you wish. Uh, there are several other possibilities. I shan't go through them. You can easily look at all this at home. General views of the Valley of the Kings, miscellaneous topics. Photographs showing work in Tutankhamun's tomb. Those are quite interesting because there aren't many of them. So uh, photographs which actually show Carter and his team working in the tomb with the descriptions and sort of all the information which you may be interested in. So that's all there. All the diaries. Now, Carter kept two, two, two kinds of diaries. His pocket diary, which was basically where he recorded how much he was going to pay the cook and uh, what he was going to pay for the donkeys and uh, things like those. And there were proper journals. And all those, all those journals have been fully transcribed and are searchable. That's quite useful if you are, for instance, if you wonder 
whether a particular person visited the tomb, then you can simply search the diaries very, very easily. And uh, we have got, uh, there are always two entries. The one in italics is, uh, is uh, Carter's pocket diary, so arrived on October the 28th, 1922. Arrived Laxo went to Ermont to see calendar. That was before the tomb, 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 tomb was found. Two donkeys was eventually at the end of the month going to pay for them. And then in his proper journal, he says, arrived Laxo on Saturday morning and took the 10 a.m. train to Ermont to see calendar, living in his, and so on. So all these transcripts are, are there for all the ninth excavation seasons until 1930. There are also, Carter's notes made in preparation uh, for the complete publication. Carter never, obviously, never completely, never produced the, the sort of final publication of, uh, of uh, the tomb. Uh, but he made, uh, he made some notes, and all those notes are uh, scanned and transcribed here. Then, uh, Maps, plans, and drawings. There are about 60 or so plans and drawings, and all those uh, can be seen here. They are all listed and uh, very easy to consult and see. Carter's account of the examination of Tutankhamun's mummy by Dr. Derry. So Carter recorded uh, what was happening, and he also made drawings during the examination of the mummy, especially those showing uh, the position of various items on the mummy. So we saw his drawings of it. So you go through the text and just click on each of those items, and you get Carter's drawing. Notes on the robberies by Howard Carter, Lucas, and Lord Carnarvon, notes on the annex, notes and memoranda, and so on and so on. So basically, uh, there are we have now completed, oh, there are also notes on Carter's lantern slides, which he used during his lectures. Uh, Mace's diary, Mace kept a diary during the first excavation season, so the transcript is there. Notes on the accounts of the opening of the burial chamber by Mace and Gardner, quite interesting to compare how different people saw the same uh, location uh, rather differently. And basically, the task has now been completed. Uh, there are also, uh, I should say, uh, because uh, Carter started looking for the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1915, and uh, that's not the subject of this talk, but all the records concerning that search between 1915 and 1922, that's available there as well. It's called the search for Tutankhamun. Uh, there's a note on King Tutankhamun, if you don't know exactly when he lived, and some of the details, and also on Howard Carter. And uh, so basically the task has now been completed. We, we think we'll finish it uh, probably in two or three months, certainly before the end of this year. Uh, all that is left now uh, are some of the, the notes which uh, Carter made in, uh, for the final publication. So we have got some, those which are highlighted, they are already available, but there are some which we haven't yet transcribed because it's quite a <clears throat> time-consuming task. And the other thing which uh, uh, is not yet available uh, are uh, Alfred Lucas's notes on conservation. Alfred Lucas kept separate records of what was done to various objects, and uh, that is currently being scanned and will be made available uh, before the end of this year. So, well, that's it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening.